This is Shaping the Future by Regent Street, brought to you directly from the iconic London Street itself and launched to celebrate its 200th anniversary year. Our modern world and everyday experiences are constantly being formed and informed by cultural influences around us. From traditions of old to the incoming tides of technology and emerging trends in fashion, art, food and well-being, this podcast celebrates how Regent Street is leading the way with these cultural forces and their impact on places now and in the future. I'm Elizabeth Day, journalist, podcaster and cultural magpie, and I'll be interviewing leaders making pioneering contributions to the world around us. Hello and welcome back to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. I'm your host, Elizabeth Day, and today we're talking about building future places. Because when it was built in 1819, Regent Street was the original purpose-built shopping street for the capital. And over 200 years, it has grown into a world-renowned destination that goes beyond just shopping, with curated year-round memorable experiences, traffic-free days, sustainable activities, and loads of creative and interactive installations that each play a part in how visitors connect with the street. To discuss the future of architecture and its importance, I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm joined by Marcus Fairs, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of the online design magazine, Design. He's also the former founding editor of the British architecture and design magazine Icon. He's written about architecture and design for many publications, including Blueprint, The Guardian, The Independent on Sunday and Condé Nast Traveller. He is the first digital journalist to be awarded an honorary fellowship of the Royal Institute of British Architects. The honour for the enormous contribution he has made to architecture was bestowed in January 2017. Marcus, welcome. I can't, I can't think of anyone better qualified to talk about the future of architecture and Regent Street specifically. But could we start by talking about your own background and how you came to be in this particular world? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was a typically confused young person who was sort of not particularly good at anything. So I kind of bumbled my way through education and ended up studying design, three-dimensional design at degree level, because I kind of just understood it and I thought it was fun. It was good to do something that wasn't academic. But then I had no talent whatsoever as a designer. My, my All my chairs and tables wobbled and you know had sharp edges on them. So I just went and explored the world, travelled a bit, and then came back to London realising that writing was the thing that I was good at. And I did a postgraduate journalism course thinking I was going to be a travel writer. But on one of the last days of the courses, someone came in and said, does anyone here understand about design? And I was the only one that put my hand up. And I, through that, I got a job on an architecture newspaper, a weekly architecture newspaper. And then kind of my journalism career took off from then. So having sort of been super interested in architecture and design when I was young and trying to make a profession out of it, but failing, I then found myself in a, an environment when I was where I was writing about it. So it was about 20 years ago and all the things you read out from my CV have happened since then. Can I ask you what might be an impossible question? So as someone who writes books, I'm often asked what my favourite book is. <laughs> and I wonder if you, as someone who specialises in architecture, have a favourite building. A favourite building? Yes. Oh my God, put me on the spot there. I mean, but loads actually. I mean, 
surprisingly, Dazeen is like a cutting edge contemporary source of architecture design information. But I remember one of the buildings that moved me most was Salisbury Cathedral. I used to live in Salisbury actually for a while. And Notre Dame in Paris and the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. So I've got a, the, the buildings that kind of you walk in and you just feel different. You feel special. You feel a kind of electricity or a shiver go through you. But in terms of contemporary architecture, I love the shard. I love the kind of bravery and the kind of sort of sticking your finger up to the London skyline of it. I love New York. I love the High Line. I love, um, I think rather than individual buildings, I love I love places. I think that when architecture touches people the most, it's when buildings come together with spaces and um, create movement and create drama. So streets and squares and, and things like that. Well, which seamlessly brings us on to um, Regent Street. Well, there you are. <laughs> How do you think architecture, because Regent Street is so historic, how can architecture shape its future? How can it contribute whilst also paying tribute to its past? Well, first of all, I love Regent Street. I'm a huge fan of it. I was really excited when I got invited on to this podcast because I, I genuinely love it. It's a really unusual street for London. London is kind of a higgledy-piggledy medieval mess if you look at the street pattern. But Regent Street has a kind of grandeur of Paris or Budapest or Turin or Madrid. Um, that was deliberate. It was built like that. It was built to create a thoroughfare, which at the time was you know like a very contemporary shopping street so it has these grand stone fronted buildings um a very it's a very wide street but it's also got this weird curve it's like a it's like a it's like a hockey stick so it it, it never ceases to surprise me that usually that kind of grandeur is is straight as an arrow but you've got this curved street that takes you from piccadilly circus and then sort of deposits you up in the kind of posh bbc riba um, parkland of, of the northern side of the city but in the meantime takes you through Mayfair on the left and then Soho on the right so it's a street that's really special actually I love the way you describe it and actually the hockey stick bit um, that's going to be developed into Quadrant Arcade I believe over the next few years where it's pedestrianised but they're using a 90 year old building and they're sort of looking to the future by remodelling the building are there any places on Regent Street I suppose I would think of the Apple Store that are particularly good at melding kind of past by being respectful of the building but also looking to the future well, I knew this question was going to come up, so I was thinking about it a lot. And even though the Apple Store is not a new concept, it's been around for what, 10 years, something like that. I mean, not the Regent Street one, but the concept of the Apple Store. I think still it's the retail initiative that is the most future-facing. I mean, uh, Apple is a technology brand. Um, it's something you can buy easily on the internet. It's something that you connects you to the, the world of, of the digital. And yet... It's great to go into a physical building, a grand physical building, and um, queue up and wait to buy a phone <laughs> or some headphones <laughs> or to try and get a tiny little screw in the bottom of your laptop replaced, as, as was my last experience. Burberry as well has been kind of very innovative in the way of bringing digital technology into the store. Um, it's actually surprising how few retailers are really being experimental, I think, in terms of engaging with today's technology. But I think... Um, Apple are the ones that are still at the forefront of, of enticing you to go to a physical place, to engage with people, to engage with the product and just to enjoy the experience of being there. Yes, because it feels like more of a community, doesn't it? So so the, the building is not just the building, it's about the community and the space around it. 
Well, the smart thing that Apple did with their stores is they chose chose prestige locations. I mean, who would have thought of selling computers on a on a street like Regent Street? But that that kind of gamble absolutely paid off because people do you do want you you feel you've come out of Oxford Circus Tube Station, and you kind of straighten up when you start to walk down Regent Street. There's it's really a powerful experience of and you see the flag fluttering there and it speaks of quality and the flag thing is very clever of course because of all the kind of elite fashion brands who have these big banners in in the same in in soho in new york um so it created a a a sense of place a sense of destination and and also a a store is only a part of a street and a street like regent street is only part of a city it's like a it's like a, a neural connection within a network you um, you can't really talk about a street as being something that exists on its own. It's interesting when you were saying sense of place, the one thing that I was thinking of as well is this sense of occasion because I remember buying my first ever Apple laptop and coming out of the tube as you so wonderfully described and walking down Regent Street and feeling that it was special and it was so special. And uh, yeah, and then I just handed over my credit card. <laughs> what in your opinion is the role of architecture and design on culture? First of all, Architecture and design is is like the hardware that allows us to live our lives. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the buildings that we we sleep in and have breakfast in or go to work in. It's the the train that we get to work in. It's the ticket machine that kind of <laughs> we battle with to get in and out of the the station. It's the bowl that we put our our cereal in in the morning. It's it's, it's kind of hardware. It has a practical job to do, but at its best. It becomes culture. It becomes poetry. It makes it makes the the mundane become a pleasant experience. Um, that's when it's great. When it's merely good, you don't notice it. When it's bad, that's when you know the the cussing starts, and you you know you you miss your stop because the signage on the tube is too too bad, or you you're just battling with the machine, or you know the the kettle lid falls off, and you scald your fingers on it, or whatever. So so architecture and design, in my view, becomes culture when it elevates itself above the merely functional into something that that makes you feel special. And what is the future of it? So what are the main trends that we're going to see over the next kind of 10 to 20 years? Well, I think there's a big battle going on because if you look at you look at the the built environment around you, you can see that the trends are building things higher, building things bigger, trying to cram as many people into places as possible. You see that in London with the, the the kind of frenetic building that's going on. But if you visit cities around the world, like, you know, Shanghai and Miami and um, even LA, like there's, there's just a kind of crazy amount of construction going on. It's kind of terrifying in a way. But at the same time, we're beginning to realise the challenges we face in terms of climate change and in terms of pollution. So those kind of ideas of the ways that architecture and design uh, particularly architecture, because of course construction and uh, the use of buildings is one of the, the greatest pollutants uh, on the planet. I mean, we're only just beginning to have the conversations about how the construction industry, the architecture industry, and um, almost more importantly, the buildings that are already there can help solve those kind of problems. But they can, because you can have buildings that are not only zero emissions, but negative emissions, buildings that take more pollution, take more carbon out of the atmosphere than they emit, that generate more electricity through solar panels than than they need, so they can sell that back to the grid. But like I said, we're only at the beginnings of starting to think about that. And is that what we mean when we talk about sustainability? Well, I think... Um, 
I think the word sustainability is, is slightly meaningless, really, because if you think about it, if you sustain something, I mean, it keeps going. So I think it's too lowly an ambition for things to be sustainable. What we need is for them to actually make a, a net positive contribution to making things better. Uh, the, the, the term that's being used increasingly now is the notion of the circular economy, whether they're, uh, they're is no pollution generated there is no waste generated where every part of something is recycled or reused or, or returned to not not as not as waste but as, as something to nurture the natural environment now that's tricky for architecture I mean, it's hard enough when you talk about a plastic water bottle or something like that but you're talking about a, a massive stone building but actually not knocking an old building down and replacing it with a new one is one of the most sustainable things you can do because of all the embedded embedded energy that was used to create that building but of course with old buildings we have to start retrofitting them because often the windows are a bit leaky and the, the heating's inefficient and the loft isn't very well insulated and so on but it's a let's let's not um beat about the bush it's a massive challenge and are there companies brands buildings that are doing that particularly well at the moment that are really helping to emit negative energy or at least neutral Oh yeah, I mean it's it's not that hard actually to to design a building that doesn't that has zero energy because you can you can have incredibly efficient insulation, you can generate power with solar panels, you can um, you can have you know if you, most buildings will need to be heated in winter, but you don't need the, the massive radiators that, that we're used to um, if the building is thermally smart that it keeps all the heat in and that it's responsive so you know when the sun's shining in on a cold day it lets the sun's rays in but when the sun's shining on in on a day when it's hot then it shades and technology can solve that a mixture of high technology and traditional techniques like there's nothing better on a hot day than a victorian house with high ceilings and you know horsehair plaster and, and, and materials that that breathe and that allow that allow the kind of climate to move through the building we've got used to the idea of a kind of sealed box with these glass skyscrapers where you have to turn up the heating in the winter and turn up the aircon in the summer it's all doable at individual building level but there are so many forces conspiring to prevent it from happening like regulations and the kind of monopoly of the power services and the, if you've ever tried to look into putting solar panels on the roof of your house you'll see literally just done that marcus yes it's quite tricky yeah it's the, the, the kind of the political, economic and societal system is stacked against that happening at the moment. But we can only chip away at it. We can only promote better ways of doing it. Not only better for the environment and the planet, but cheaper as well and, and um, easier. And have you come across this initiative City Tree that operates around Regent Street and, and various other cities, including Berlin, Amsterdam, Oslo. And one of the things that they do that I particularly like is they have these public benches that are moss-backed and that sort of breathe in a technical term. Anyway, they remove emissions from the atmosphere. Um, how, how much more do you think we'll see initiatives like that in the future? Well, I think those kind of initiatives are really, really important. First of all, because they're testing out ideas. Second of all, they get people used to it. I mean, to if you're confronted with something like that and you read the sign and start to understand it, that's really important in terms of educating people. Um, but we're going to have to scale it up to a fairly massive scale. But why not? Why not have buildings that where the entire facade is moss or the entire roof or there's a kind of a big rack on top that, that takes pollution 
out of the air. Why not? Um, why not think about a, a much more ambitious scale of those kind of things? But it's great that people are starting to to think about it and and put them in place. I love the idea of an entire mosque covered building. It's rather beautiful. Well, it's happening because you remember when you know you first used to see those kind of weird planted facades. But now there are whole buildings covered in those. And now there's a trend for them to be indoors as well. You see them in a lot of shops and actually people are starting to specify them in their homes as well because they look beautiful. They, they, you know, Being close to plants actually has a psychological benefit. People, people have been proven to become happier when they walk into a forest. Um, so we, we do need to find ways of, of going beyond the moss just being on the back of a bench. Like why not? Why can't the whole street be a moss forest or a cloud forest or a, or a, or a jungle or a pine wood or whatever? I love that stat about people have been proven to become happy when they walk into a forest. But haven't you not experienced it for yourself? Yes. And actually, I was talking before we started chatting on this podcast about having walked past the Apple store, Apple again, and noticed that they put in these really tall, beautiful, I think they're olive trees, and how stunning that was. And again, how inviting it was. Yeah, it's, it's like a woodland glade. That's a, I, I, when I was waiting to have the screw on my, my <laughs> um, laptop replaced, I was sitting there under the tree and a leaf fell mm. and landed at my foot. And it was actually kind of like a... I, well, I was actually waiting for someone to come and sweep it away, <laughs> thinking how long. But but the the thing is, and this is another interesting point, that um, in cities, in in our interiors, we've gradually over decades and centuries banished nature. You know, now if a fly comes in the window, you're like you're you're reaching for the swatter or the spray or whatever. We've come to see nature as something to be eradicated. Apparently most of the trees planted in cities are clones and they're, they're I can't remember whether it's the male or female, but they're clones of the same one tree that is is chosen to drop the least dust and stuff on the floor so even when we walk down a, you know there's streets a streets planted with trees and we think oh nature it's not really nature it's, it's highly artificial so we do somehow need to find in in these great urban thoroughfares a way i think of of rewilding them in a way like making them natural places um, making them places where you can have the benefit of everything we love about cities, but everything we know that deep down inside in our DNA, we love about wild places and forests. And there's plenty of places being taken up these, with these beastly cars, isn't there, where we could maybe give a bit more space to nature. So, for example, I think Regent Street is part of the Wild West End initiative, which is, you know, intending to bring back um, and encourage bird life and even bats I think are one of the things I want to encourage back which would be just so wonderful because you know when you're, you're in a broad you're on holiday and you're in a, in a little restaurant and then a bat flies over it's like a real ooh moment isn't it imagine, <laughs> if, imagine if there were bats flying around in the apple store it'd be great <laughs> and of course rooftops as well because you know the, the, the city has the, the street level that we all occupy but then there's the roof level as well and there's so much space up there for, for plants and, and birds and insects and, and I think also Regent Street as through the Wild West End initiative is, is, has got a hectare Hectors or something of, yeah. of, uh, of, of greenery, which is just fantastic. Imagine, imagine that multiplied across the, the whole city. Imagine flying over London in a plane circling endlessly to get to Heathrow and just looking down at it being green. You mentioned earlier about how Burberry is one of the brands that's innovating with kind of tech in their buildings and flagship stores. And I noticed that there's a real trend for there to be an experiential offering for customers. So 
if you go to H&M Home, you no longer just go in to buy a cushion, you also have an opportunity to sit in the cafe. And um, how, how much credence do you give that as a, a solid future trend in architecture? Well, I think that's partly a trend in retail because, you know, fashion brands uh, have noticed that they might be able to move into decorating people's houses and things like that. Um, of course, the problem with fashion is, again, it's one of the most kind of polluting and um, damaging industries. But at the same time, the, that, that's the slightly negative side of it, in my view. But on the more positive side, people want to have experiences. And um, if you're anything like me, the experience of going and picking out a jumper from a rail is not, not, not something I'd leap out on a Saturday afternoon. But if you knew that you could also maybe sit down with a book and order something nice to eat and, and just while away some of the time, I think that's important because, um, you know, the, 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 the experienceification of cities is a huge trend that's going on. I mean, actually, cities are becoming overrun with people wanting to go and experience Lisbon, for example, or, or Prague. Um, so the, the, the kind of the, the straight retail proposition is is has to work a bit harder. It has to has to diversify a bit more in order to give people the options because at the end of the day they can just sit in bed and do all their shopping if they want to. Well, that's interesting because. As you say, you can sit in bed with your laptop that you just fix at the Apple Store because the screw's back in place, and you can internet shop online. And that poses a real challenge for physical locations like Regent Street. How can retailers meet that challenge and ensure that there is still footfall? Well, in the ways that we're talking about, yeah. for example, you notice a lot of you know cafes popping up and bars popping up in retail destinations. Even there's been experiments with putting sort of little capsule hotels within those kind of spaces. I think we'll see a lot of experimentation with diversification of use. So it's not just rails of clothes or stacks of products. Um, but back to the beginning of the conversation, if you've got a beautiful stone streets with a beautiful curve to it that catches the light in a certain way and you've got banners fluttering in the breeze you've got a huge advantage over the internet and over other spaces out of town spaces because you just don't get that physical experience you know we talk about the experience of walking into a mosque or a cathedral well a shopping center done well can give you that same kind of experience that you simply can't get by clicking on Amazon or something like that. I think people crave experience and architecture, place, interiors, aromas, music. Those are, those are the things that people want in their lives in which the digital, digital realm hasn't yet managed to replicate. Are aromas something that people who design buildings are now factoring in? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sound as well. Actually, there's a huge amount of work that's done in, in creating soundscapes within buildings. Nothing is accidental very much anymore. I mean, the, the cliche of like, if you want to sell your house, bake some bread before the potential buyers come around. But also, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are uh, retail brands that have their own sense now. You walk in and it, you may not even notice it at uh, a conscious level, but subconsciously, the, the, the it smells different from all the other ones. Um, subconsciously, there might be some sound playing that isn't really music, but that gives you it's like a kind of a sort of subliminal jingle of that space. Yeah, absolutely, people are, and um, but also not just in 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 buildings either. I mean, they're, they're in in the Netherlands, they're experimenting 
for example, in Eindhoven, there's a street which is full of bars. So when there's a football match, everyone goes there and gets a bit drunk and gets a bit aggressive. And they're experimenting with using um, sound and light to calm people down. And they, they found that they can certain um, light temperatures and colours and certain types of sound can take the aggression out of a crowd. That's so fascinating. In this age of, of Pinterest obsession, do you think the average punter has become more aesthetically demanding and aware? I think that's more come from Instagram, but yes, I think that there's people's, people's taste has been altered by Instagram. People's awareness of themselves and their surrounding has been... Um, has been altered. I mean, profoundly, actually. I mean, people, architects and designers, you can now go on courses on how to design a building to be more Instagrammable. What? Yeah, yeah particularly in, in food and beverage and hotels. One of the things that clients ask their architects for is now, I need an Instagram moment. So is it a sort of um, something on the wall, a bit of graffiti or an artwork on the wall? Or is it kind of a vista when you walk in? You see now these kind of um, sprays of... Um, floral arrangements around the entrances to to shops and bars they're all around all around central london I, the first time i saw them i was like what is there a wedding going on but no it's an instagram thing some of them with real flowers some of them with artificial flowers but it's in order to encourage people to stop take a picture maybe the logos in the background maybe a bit of product yeah instagram has had is has been probably the most powerful um driver of taste and then also, not just taste, but also a driver of getting people to, to go to places and want to have that experience for themselves of, of the last decade. I feel so played. It's those <laughs> ubiquitous neon signs. And the thing is, I'm such a sucker for them. I love a neon sign. I will always Instagram a neon sign. <laughs> yeah, or a, a cute cat or yes. you know, pink flamingo or something like that. We need to build all new buildings with cute cats involved. That's the future of architecture. <laughs> well, it's funny, though, because actually you think about, you know, you, you go on on holiday or you go to a sleepy little village somewhere and you go into the cute little bookshop or the cafe and, and there's a there's a cat there's often a cat there isn't there that's like a to have a cat in a in a space is not a is not a new thing but it's um uh, instagram has allowed you to share that cat moment with everyone you know leading on from that how important is public art and the installations that regent street does so beautifully year in year out well, um, I, I, it depends what you're talking about. I mean, again, to create experience, so Christmas, for example, mm. yeah, people will make an effort to travel to, to a place to experience something like a Christmas display of lights. Personally, I'm not a big fan of public art unless it's like really good. I, mean, it's, I think there's a there's a, it's, it's the turd in the plaza approach, isn't it, where... People think, oh, we built a built a public square. Now we need a thing in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, is it, is, it a, is it a shiny, bendy thing, or is it a sharp, spiky thing, or whatever? Um, I don't think you can do better than have really good, uh, well-designed things for people to sit on. For example, you know, bins, mm. um, uh, plant pots, and things like that. Again, that for me is, is quality urban design. Even just the, the the type of material you use on the floor—is it stone? Is it cobble? Or whatever. It's very nice stone, by the way. In in Regent Street, I always notice that those nice wide pavements. Yeah, what kind of stone is it? Do you know? I think it's Portland stone. I think Regent Street. I think when because the, the it's two hundred year old street, but most of the buildings are a hundred years old, more or less. It was all rebuilt because the buildings became outdated and i think it was decreed that all the facades had to be built in portland stone 
Um, and I would guess that the, the payment is the same. But I'm sure you're going to get people emailing in and telling me how wrong I am. <laughs> and how important is accessibility? Because I know Sinead Burke, the phenomenal campaigner, has been integral in redesigning the Burberry store to include railings and lower chairs and tables so that she was creating an ex- inclusive shopping experience. How important are those kind of initiatives? Oh, they're vital and it's exactly the kind of thing we need to, to see more of. I mean, more retailers should be doing the same thing. We want, we want all of our places and spaces to be accessible, enjoyable to everyone. And now when that doesn't happen, there's a huge outcry about it because, the, you know, for example, the Olafur Eliasson exhibition at Tate Modern, there's an installation there which has steps up to it. And there was a big to-do about that. And by the time I visited, they'd put a sign up all the, on the wall saying, we're really, really sorry. We mm-hmm. tried to build a ramp, but it just it isn't possible and whatever. But I think, yeah, I think it's second nature now for people to think about accessibility and, and step-free access. I mean, of course, it's hard, again, when you've got um, legacy buildings, particularly things like tube stations, and to put a lift in it is, is, is really, really difficult. But there's no excuse when you're designing something new and luckily, much of central London is fairly flat, so it's not that hard to um, take that lintel out or you know, re- or put a ramp in where there's a change of level. And I know that Regent Street has been at the forefront of pedestrianising certain spaces and going traffic free, and that car flows have been reduced by 12% in the last 10 years in that particular area. What do you think of pedestrianised areas? You know, my opinion about that has changed because I used to be of the view that traffic added to a place, like it gave it buzz, it gave it energy. But I think increasingly, as uh, cities have woken up to pedestrianisation, I think that if it's done well, you just need to get the traffic out. You just need to get the traffic out because it's it's there's there's lots of things like especially uh, petrol and diesel vehicles are polluting. I mean that. If, if you go to a city like Oslo, for example, where um, nearly all the, the vehicles on the streets are electric and they have huge parts of the city that are only for pedestrians and cycles and, and, um, and non, non-cars. So, that you know, along the waterfront in Oslo, people are zipping around on electric bikes and electric scooters and segways and all kinds of other weird um, electric-powered devices. And it's amazing it's quiet because you once the noise of traffic is taken away you suddenly almost hear the silence uh, and you also taste and smell the lack of pollutants uh, and it's it's astonishing actually and there are there are ways to pedestrianize streets which make them really tacky but there's ways of doing them really well as well and I've been to Shanghai three times. The first time I went was about 20 years ago and everyone was on a bicycle. And I have this strong memory of the chirping of the bells. It was like birdsong and having to look everywhere before you cross the street because there were bicycles coming left, right and centre. And then the second time I went was about six years ago and all the bicycles had been replaced by petrol scooters and the pollution was awful and your eyes were stinging and the noise and the sense of danger. But the last time I went back earlier this year... It's all electric vehicles now. So suddenly it's gone back to the silence of the bicycles, but actually even quieter. So I think for, for not just for reasons of safety and not just for reasons of, of your health, but just kind of aesthetically uh, a street that, that has silence, that has things gliding up and down. It's, it's just, it's so unbelievably great. 
And do you think that that will ever happen in London? Because it's so difficult to initiate change, it feels. Well, um, there's, there's no reason why it shouldn't. I mean, of course, people need to get around. But uh, it's, it's way more efficient. There are way more efficient ways of people getting around than having metal boxes powered by fossil fuels, you know, standing most of the time, standing still, than racing to the next set of lights. It's actually terribly inefficient. It's a question of legislation. It's a question of consumer choice. I mean, the rise of kind of ride-sharing apps has actually set us back because, I don't know about you, but if I'm feeling lazy, being to an event in London in the evening, you just think, I just call a you know, unnamed ride-sharing yes. ride app rather than do my civic duty and, and get on a, a bus or, or on a tube. But again, there needs to be... The, well, there, there has been a study, I think it was Bartlett did a study last year that proved that... Um, streets that had been pedestrianised or that encouraged cycling and discouraged cars, people would spend more. If people walk to a shop, they'll spend more. If people cycle to a shop, they'll spend more. I think it was 40% more than a car. So... We can we can talk about the aesthetic reasons and the public health reasons, whatever. But if it, if the econ- economic reasons stack up, then change is much more likely to happen. That's so interesting. I wonder if it's because you've put effort in, you put physical effort into getting to your destination. Therefore, you feel like it's worthwhile spending. Yeah, I mean, I didn't read the study in depth, but you can start to speculate because you know if if you drive somewhere then you've got the stress of finding somewhere to park and then you've got the stress of like oh god what time did i buy the ticket up until and like um you know where did i put the car and so on and so forth but if you just turn up as a pedestrian however you got there in a taxi or whatever it's sort of you're you're more untethered and um you maybe think like "Mm, i can have that extra glass of wine because i don't have to worry about drink driving or whatever so there may be uh, as well as practical reasons of the kind of the the sheer logistical hassle of taking a vehicle to a a busy place the sort of psychological reasons as well that make you feel more relaxed so interesting i have to say that because i am properly british and i feel like a real londoner when i go to la i'm so excited by the fact that i can drive to a shopping center park there i i end up buying so much because i know i can just fit it into the boot on the way back but um i imagine that actually if you are so used to driving then it seems so much more unique to walk and cycle somewhere so it's sort of both both can have their yeah but th- i mean that that's solvable isn't it I mean, I, i'm the same it's like sometimes you need to you, you need to go and buy something that's just too big to take on i mean I, I, in, <laughs> in my youth i did get on the bus with incredibly large crazily large purchases but yeah um but that that's solvable i mean the stores can provide delivery services or you can call an uber to the back of john lewis or whatever to to take the the massive tv home but back to what i was saying is that it has been proven that pedestrianized or uh, cycle friendly um areas people spend more money so that's it that's the that's the that should be the logical driver that that forces change yeah and i we did um one of these podcasts on fashion and uh, they were talking about how you can go into stores on regent street and say i bought this stuff from another shop i'm buying some stuff here and if i pay 10 pounds you can courier it back which i didn't know so it's been a learning exercise for me as well what retailers do you think are doing a particularly good job in this area in terms of building for the future I love Liberty. I was in there with the family not that long ago. Uh, I must admit, it was my daughter's birthday and we were between 
places and it was raining so i said let's go in liberty and, and have a have, have an explore um it, it's it's such a beautiful and kind of strange and kind of paradoxical alice in wonderland kind of space funny actually i'm not saying i'm not a shopper i, I was buying things left right and center <laughs> in, in liberty found all these little knickknacks that it's because you'd walked there and then it was raining so you're like well i can't hurry and so there you are experiential shopping at its best yeah but also i'm 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 so into architecture and design and, and, and I kind of need, I, I want I want to, if I'm going to spend some money, I want to be in a place that I feel comfortable in. So actually, it, the, the things I bought in Liberty were really boring. I bought a jug, <laughs> like a water jug. I bought some deodorant. I bought some um, birthday cards. But actually, I'd much rather wait and buy those kind of inane everyday purchases in, in somewhere as wonderful as Liberty than pop to the you know rather scuzzy chemist at the end of our street yeah i love that as an idea um if you could choose one thing that in 10 or 20 years time would be standard for any new building what would it be um i i think um to be energy positive is 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 going to have to be something that that regulators take on board where buildings do not consume energy they're net generators of energy and as i said before it's easy to do it's really easy to do but there are there are probably 50 things that 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 could be done i mean for example thinking about the air quality inside a building and, and making sure that all the materials that are used don't give off harmful gases and things like that, uh, and then and again bringing nature in, as we've been talking about the the psychological benefits of living with. I mean, we're talking about plants, but what about animals as well? Like more animals in building that would be pretty good. More Instagramable cats. Well, you have all these kind of petting cafes now, don't you? That that trend of like you know cat cafes, and there's even owl cafes in Japan. But again, why is that? It's because people animals re- relax people, just like going to the forest has been proven to make feel people feel better than having a cat on your lap slows down your heart rate lowers your stress level i don't quite know where my argument's going we sort of no i love it (laughs) abandoning the city to to wildlife (laughs) let's all go and live on a farm no i went to a cat cafe in south korea and it was just the most joyous experience so i feel that we're going to be seeing petting zoos in the apple store before long Um, that's certainly what i hope Um, maybe maybe to summarize i think that all if you look at all the things that we've excluded from urban spaces over the last 100, 200 years and all the things we've allowed to flourish that are not so good. If we start to reverse that conversation, it doesn't mean we turn cities back into um, to jungle, but we take away the, 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 the noisy pollution generating stuff and we bring back the stuff that gives us joy, which a lot of it is, is the natural world. Marcus Fairs, what a lovely note to end on. Thank you so, so much for coming in to talk about building future places. And thank you all so much for listening. And I'm very sad to say that that's our final episode. But I hope you have enjoyed the series and I hope you have learned just as much as I have. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do take a minute to rate, review and subscribe. It really does help other people to find the show. Follow more Regent Street happenings at Regent Street W1 on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Otherwise, head over to regentstreetonline.com for more detailed information. 
This has been Shaping the Future by Regent Street. With me, your host, Elizabeth Day.